Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Candy. It's good to be back. How was your trip? It was lovely. Myself and a couple friends that are listeners. Hi, Jill. Hi, Lori. We all went to Biltmore Mm -hmm. and Tybee Island and Savannah on a week-long girls trip, road trip. We had a lovely time and that was our word for one of the days was lovely and it was lovely and I got you something and I'm going to give it to you live on radio. But when I saw it, I knew it had to be yours. Oh goodness. You're you're building up the suspense. It says, Candy's gift is in books. So I I wouldn't lose it. Where'd it go? Oh my gosh. No, here it is, here it is, here it is. All right, here you go. Turn it over and look what it is. Look at the other side. I, I know, but I, I like the name already. Oh. Sticker Cabana. Okay, <laughs> all right. cute. <gasps> it's, oh, I love it. It's, <laughs> it's Tybee Island, Georgia is the little label underneath, uh-huh. but it's a little Jaws. It's, it's a, a little, little Jaws, yes. <laughs> That's a perfect sticker. Yes, and I, I told them it. there was a big one and a small one. I said, I'm getting her the small one in case she hates it, then she can hide it somewhere. <laughs> I love our Jaws. That's one of my highlights. I think that two too. episode. I know. And it was such a. Focus was wonderful. It was such an episode of joy that that's why I was like, mm, that's the one I want to give yeah. her. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. You I are love welcome. It. I love it. Well, I think this is going to be another episode of joy, especially for you because oh you're the one who actually suggested this. <sighs> yes. And I cannot promise that I will just not burst into tears asunder at some point because his story just moves me so much. Well, I. Good. Bring oh. it on because. Because I have a few surprises that came up for okay. me as we were doing this episode. All right. Guys, just to let you know, we're going to be talking about Rudy today. But mm-hmm. before we jump on into the film, let's just kind of give you a little bit of a backstory. It was interesting because Ashley and I knew with our theme of back to school, mm-hmm. we thought, you know what? Back to school. There are so many school-based sports stories out there right. or series or plays or whatever it might be. Let's let's do something related to sports. And so Ashley and I were kind of debating what movie or play or, or work do we want to focus on? Right. You actually put a call out on I Facebook. I did. I did it in secret. I did it under only my name so people wouldn't know that we were fishing, <laughs> literally fishing. And I had thought Rudy. I mean, it was just one of those thunderbolts. And I just, I remember like snapping, be like, Rudy, we have to do Rudy. And so we wanted to make sure that I wasn't just out of touch. And we did a kind of a call out, like, what's your favorite sports movie? Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of really we great did. answers. We did. That's what shocked me is how many sports movies yes. have resonated with people. Yes. It was unbelievable. Hoosiers was a close second. We almost covered Hoosiers, but Rudy won out by just a hair. I think there was actually a tie, but but okay. you had such an emotional connection yes. to it that why not go with that, yeah. you know? And it's funny because here's one of the surprises, Ashley, as I started to research and then I did my rewatch. Surprise number one, I realized why I was not as connected to Rudy as you were. Why? Because I've never seen it. No way! Yeah, no, it's funny. We have... Teachers who teach language arts, you're going to connect to this. We have something called Scholastic Magazine. Yeah. And they will do like little plays of popular works. Yeah. And somewhere over the years, 
teachers also save everything. Okay. You reuse everything for years, <laughs> right? You're on yeah. a budget. There was a play version of Rudy that I had used with my classes. What does that mean? A play version? Well, in a bridge, like they put oh. it in a, you know, you, you might be teaching drama okay. and how to write a script or, okay. you know, whatever, or you might just be doing a work with your kids to work on fluency, but you would pull out one of these little plays and you would do it with your class. Oh, so they would and play the parks. Yeah. Like you, it's a script of okay. Rudy, but it's a much, obviously a much shorter right, version. Sure. I had used that with my kids a few different times over the years. Mm-hmm. thought I'd seen Rudy. I, I was only it. familiar with the story because of this very abridged ah. kid version of the movie. Okay. So when I was actually watching it, I was like, oh, well, hey, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, I kind of like this. Yeah. This Rudy kid. I, I see now why Ashley likes it so much. Ashley's um, weeping in her <laughs> chair with a tissue. So let's, let's go ahead and get started. First of all, you will be happy to know this film is beloved. Oh, yeah. At the time it came out back in 1993, it had some nice critical reviews even then. In fact, Roger Ebert had a review about it again right after it came out. And just one little quote from his review said, it's a must-see story for any fan of the underdog and especially fans of the fighting Irish. Mm -hmm. But it looks as though it has just become more popular and more respected as a film. You know, just the the storytelling. And something that just hit me when you said 1993, do you realize that our podcast started and ended? Because this will be our last kind of official episode before our break with 1993. I did not put that together. Yes, Daniel Wozniak happened in 1993 because remember, I remember because my Jurassic Park yes. joke. When I heard you say 1993, I was like, oh, that was it a good connected. year, Jurassic Park. Very intentional. We, we are, Yeah, we... of course, yes. <laughs> and also, this is going to come out on August 23rd, which is happy birthday to Rudy. So many happy coincidences. It is. This is it is. This I is love wonderful. It. Meant to be. It was meant to be. Well, but again, just this past July 14th of 2022, Sports Illustrated put out a little article titled The Best 11 Sports Movies to Stream This Summer. Mm-hmm. Rudy was one of them. Oh, so yeah. making that point that it has remained beloved and relevant all these years. Another example, a Nevada Sportsnet article from this past May had this quote. The 1993 movie starring Sean Astin highlighted Rudiker's underdog story of working through college and eventually being a member of the fighting Irish roster. And it is considered a sports classic. Yes. So we have that title of sports classic. And then something else that got me. I saw an article. Now, this is back from 2011. But it talked about an encounter between Rudy and Kobe Bryant. What? Yeah. Oh, this was pretty cool. So Rudy and his daughter, Jessica had come to a game because his daughter, Jessica, must be an amazing singer, and she was going to sing the national anthem. And so he approaches Kobe Bryant, and Kobe tells him, that movie changed my life. That's a quote. And he goes on to explain that he was a sophomore at Laura Marion High School when he first saw the movie Rudy back in 1993. He told Rudy he had seen it at least a handful of times in theaters, and then by his own count, about a hundred times on tape, he said the film had motivated him to work harder than he ever had before, and that at this time that he's talking to Rudy, that it continued to inspire him to be the first one at the practice facility and the last to leave. Mm. And then here's one last actual quote from Kobe Bryant. When I saw it... I told myself, if I can play as hard as Rudy with a talent I have, anything's possible. Mm. And then it said in the article, it was kind of this nice little closing that, you know, Rudy walked away and Kobe talks to this staffer who's right there beside him. He says, you want to meet the person who's had the biggest influence on my life? He points over there and he says, that's Rudy. The real Rudy Rudiger. (laughs) Okay. So I was like, okay. Okay. I mean, here are just a few examples of the impact that this film has had on people over the course of the last, how many years would this be? 20 
Mm. Almost 30. Yeah, get moving close on 30. That's right. So it's touched a lot of people. If there's anybody like myself... <laughs> Not actually it. seen it. Who, missed, who like you know maybe like I missed the Karate Kid boat. You missed the Rudy boat. It's okay. We all miss boats every that's, once that's in a while. Right. I've seen it now, and I know <laughs> more right. about Rudy probably than a lot of people. That's right. So you do. I, I came back with a vengeance. All right. <laughs> so here's a brief summary with spoilers. <laughs> 1993. I think yeah, it's okay. It's okay. All right. This film from the early 90s tells the true story of Rudy Rudiger, a football player who dreams of going to Notre Dame and getting his chance to play for the Fighting Irish. He's a five foot six, 165 pound kid who was always told he would never make it, but refuses to give up. Not only does he achieve his dream of playing, but he records a sack in the last play of the final home game, the only game in which he ever appeared. He is then carried off the field on the shoulders of his teammates, the last player to ever be carried off the field at Notre Dame Stadium. I know. So the sack, of course, obviously is real, and it happened on November 8th, 1975. The real Rudy's name is Dan, the nickname Rudy because of his last name being Rudiger, and he has been quoted as saying that this sack changed my life. You and I wouldn't be talking. He's referencing an interviewer that he's mm-hmm. speaking with at that moment. He says, it was special. I found it on YouTube. Found what? The play. The oh, I did play. too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw it. That's cool. Well, we need to put that, obviously, link it in our show notes and on yes. our Facebook page. But this was so special that after being that bulldog that wouldn't give up and mm-hmm. made it, made his dream come true of playing for the Fighting Irish, afterwards, he actually was that same bulldog who then pursued the dream of making the movie, getting this movie oh, made. Oh, he's he, the one that did it. He's behind it. Oh. So before we talk more about the movie and Rudy himself, I'm going to tell you the story of what he did after this sack and how he got the movie made. Please do. Okay. Took him more than 15 years. He's quoted as saying, the process was very difficult, very challenging. The process was lonely. It was almost like, is this going to happen? But man, once it happens, it's a whole different deal. He's so single-minded. He locks on to a goal and he will not stop. And I've made a lot of notes as I was watching the movie and we can we can maybe talk about it later when we go over the movie, but there was just so many thoughts that I was having, deep thoughts I was having as this was going on. And one of those is just single-minded. That's what came to my mind is... He was single-minded. Okay. Well, and I want us to stop and talk about those during the episode yes. before we before we get to the end. I don't want to save okay. that for the armchair. Because, okay. Because surprise number two is coming. Oh, we got a surprise coming. Okay. okay. All, right. All right. So back to the movie-making process. Here's another quote from an ESPN article. Back in the 1980s and early 90s, Rudy was no longer the crazy little Notre Dame walk-on. He was the crazy former Notre Dame (laughs) walk-on obsessed with making a movie about his life. So he went on to sell Amway. He sold insurance. He sold cars until the guy who ran the dealership told Rudy he was too focused on making a movie to sell cars and he let him go. Oh, dude. (laughs) Yeah. He started mowing lawns. He did everything. To raise money? Well, he was making his living, but also trying to raise some money. But more so than that, he was trying to get people to take on his project. Ah. And so very social guy. I mean, very social. And as you've said, a huge go-getter. One of the things that he did all the time was he had his home was across from Notre Dame. It was near the campus. He hosted cookouts at his South Bend condo all the time where he would get Notre Dame players, 
former players, present players, coaches. Sometimes he got famous people to come by and they would hang out with him at these cookouts. They'd drink beer and he would pitch his movie idea to all of them. And one of the things that really inspired him was he had seen Rocky in the movie theater. Oh, now yeah. he, had, he was already inspired. He knew he wanted to make this movie. But sure. when he saw Rocky, he was on fire because he felt like, here's this quote, I'm going to make a movie about my story because it can inspire people just like Sly Stallone did. Mm-hmm. So that fueled his fire. Yeah. He even had Julia Roberts come by with her boyfriend, Jason Patrick, back when that was going on. Yeah. And Jason's dad, Jason Miller, was with them. Did not know this, but he's an actor. He was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for that championship season, and he was an Oscar nominee for his role as the priest in The Exorcist. He's the guy, Jason Miller, who later ends up playing Era Procedian in the movie, The Coach. Oh, what? Yes. Oh, I got goosebumps. So like he's got all these people. He yes. manages to get them to come hang out with him. And he's like, he's going after this movie idea. So somehow, pushing, 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 he gets hold of the screenwriter, Angelo Pizzo of Hoosier's fame. Uh-huh. Which was almost one of our, cho- almost our choice. Yep. Yes. Well, he stands him up. Rudy gets a mail carrier to show him. He tells him all about his idea. And this mail carrier is like, that's my story too. That's my story too. (laughs) This mail carrier, not supposed to do this, but kind of on the sly, shows him where Angelo Pizzo lives. And he bangs on this door and gets Angelo Pizzo to agree to meet him. They meet. Pizzo turns it down because he said he was an IU grad. He hated Notre Dame. He tells him that. He also mainly, here was his thing. He didn't want to be pigeonholed as the guy in Hollywood who Mm -hmm. only writes movies, not just sports, but Indiana. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Well, a year later, you know, Rudy's still pushing this whole time. This guy calls him back. And the executive who had given the green light for Hoosiers in 1986 was now at a different studio and he had money set aside to do another small sports movie project. And he's like, turns out I I would like to be pigeonholed as a man who writes sports movies in Indiana. Yes. So in early 1991, Angelo Pizzo flew to South Bend. He spent weeks walking the campus with Rudy, talking to Rudy, talking to the friends. And then he disappears and he says to Rudy, trust me. Oh, wow. Rudy says, it was six months of silence before he sent me that script and I was a nervous wreck. I bet. I read it in one sitting and I cried my eyes out. Oh, I bet. He understood me. He understood my spirit. I knew we had something that could really inspire people and that's all I wanted. Now, here's an important point. He also said in this interview, this is the continuation of that same quote, but I also realized there were some creative choices that were made in that script that were going to require some explaining to the people who lived it. Sure. Yes. Okay. And scriptwriter Angelo Pizzo said he acknowledged he changed some of Rudy's life story because he wanted to, quote, capture the key truthful element and let the drama take over. And just as a side note, like one, just to give you one example, Rudy made a big deal about the fact that he wanted people to understand that Dan Devine and his immediate family were really far more supportive of his dream Mm -hmm. than the movie made it sound. So in some cases, I think he felt like, you know, he maybe did a little bit of disservice to a few people. Right. I saw in the IMDb trivia where Dan Devine was, because he was such good friends with Rudy in real life, he volunteered to be the villain so that it could get the story greenlit. But then another trivia said that he was kind of hurt because that whole Jersey thing never happened where the team comes in and lays down their Jersey Mm -hmm. because he said, no, I put him in on my own. But then the YouTube video I saw, Rudy says that he found out later that two players did go to him and say, let him dress in my place. So there may not have been the Jersey 
Jersey moment, but then when the two players went to him, he was very agreeable. So I think it's a combination of all of that. That's interesting because I'm going to get to all that uh-huh. too. And my research didn't line up exactly with what yeah. you saw. There's so okay. many conflicting reports. Yeah. So so we probably should say that from the start. So many different sources, something yeah. that happened a long time yeah. ago. We're probably going to see some things that don't line up. Yeah. But yeah. Dan Devine was very unhappy about the Jersey mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. I saw that as well. That mm-hmm. seems to be something that is he said corroborated. They would have gotten kicked off the team if they. Had yeah, done you, you like don't that. do that. You don't he do wasn't going to put up with that. But we're going to come back and go into a lot more detail with that. One quick note is Rudy points out based on a true story. Right. It doesn't say one hundred percent true. Right. Based and on I saw a true somewhere story. that he said it was about ninety-two percent accurate. Okay. I don't remember where I saw that, but I wrote it down at the top of my notes. Well, the film was shot on location on the Notre Dame campus, and that was a really big deal. It was the first movie shoot Notre Dame had allowed since the Canute Rockney. I saw that they like to pronounce the K. The Canute (laughs) Rockney All-American film in 1940. And there was a quote from a reverend who was an executive for Notre Dame. He told the New York Times, we didn't want another movie about Notre Dame football. Then we read the script and realized it wasn't a football movie, but a heartwarming, enlivening story about someone's hard work to reach a goal. Mm -hmm. So... This is where we're going to briefly talk about the movie. I have a few notes, but it's kind of general. And you feel free to jump in here with some of your thoughts. We've already mentioned the screenwriter was from the movie Hoosiers. Well, the director was as well. Ah. Yeah. It was directed by David Anspaugh, who directed Hoosiers, as we said, back in 1986. And this is actually a really huge deal. The fact that you had this team, because one of the reviews said they felt like these guys working together again are what kept this from just being a sports film. Yes, yes. They said this was something where there was attention to detail. There was a preference for close, this is their quote from this review, a preference for close observation of the characters rather than sweeping sports sentiment. Yes. So it was about the people. It was was about about the relationships. Exactly. It's a character movie. Mm-hmm. And then time and time again, it came out, Sean Astin. Oh, Sean, Sean Astin, Astin, masterful job. He made did. this movie. I don't know anyone else, even today, that could play, if they remade Rudy, I don't know anyone who could play it with the earnestness, the sincerity, the just heart on his sleeve empathy than Sean Astin. I don't have a Rudy shirt, but I wore my Goonie shirt because I love <laughs> Sean Astin. In honor. I did, in honor. <laughs> Yeah, he was amazing. Again, back in 1993, even at that moment, Roger Ebert in his review said, In Rudy, Onspa finds a serious, affecting performance by Sean Astin. Astin's performance is so self-effacing, so focused and low-key that we lose sight of the underdog formula of the movie and begin to focus on this dogged kid who Mm -hmm. won't quit. Mm -hmm. And he does go on to say, and the last big scene is an emotional powerhouse just the way it's supposed to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But lots of credit to Sean from the beginning. Yes. From the time that movie first came out. He obviously was surrounded by a strong cast. We had John Favreau, Charles S. Dutton played Fortune, Lily Taylor was the girlfriend, Ned Beatty was the dad. was in his first role. Yep. He played Jamie O'Hara. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, his debut. And then, of course, he and John Favreau then hooked up, became good friends, yeah. and went on to do those other projects That's together. Cool. A few interesting things I found about the movie. Sean Astin 
took a beating doing this. Oh my gosh. There, at one point I said to myself, does he have blood on his jersey? And then they said, see the kid with blood on his jersey? <laughs> he does. Poor baby. He's got blood all over him. Which was, I mean, obviously they're trying to show Rudy and, and I'm that was very intentional, I'm uh-huh. sure. But at the same time, because Sean Astin so wanted tiny. to show yes. that doggedness and that aggressiveness yes. and the heart, he was determined he was going to go for it. Yeah. He said in an interview that he had a stunt man and that stunt man ended up needing knee surgery by the end of the shoot. But he added, quote, but I kept jumping in to do my own tackles because I felt a lot of scenes would look like a stunt man if I didn't. Yeah. And then he said he got, he jumped in and got smashed up all the time by these 300 pound football players. And he, he shared that he has Polaroids of his entire body being so bruised up from this experience. So he went for it. He did. But that's part of what makes me love him. And the one scene in the movie where the guy pulls back on the tackle and he gets mad at him. He says, you're not here. I'm not in kindergarten. Hit me, hit me. You know, how am I supposed to help you prep for the game if you don't actually hit me? I love that moment. That was so good. (laughs) Mm. Well, did you know that Rudy, the real Rudy actually appears in the movie? Yes. He's a fan behind the dad. Yes. And you can find him. And I saw that it was mentioned in like a mental floss article, but he's actually in the credits. Like, oh, he is? Yeah. He's credited as being, you know, a fan Fan. cheering. Yeah. So if you zoom in, pause your, you know, your TV and zoom in, when you have the scene of the family cheering in the stands and you can kind of see Ned Beatty, right behind Ned Beatty, there is a man who's got a blue winter coat. It's kind of got this fluffy lapel and he's got a hat on. That's the real Rudy. That's cool. Yeah. So I want to hear a few of your thoughts about the movie before we move on. Okay. All right. Well, I have some notes and I'll just read over them and we'll see if they are interesting to the listeners. In the opening scene, I noticed that baby Rudy, just the kid playing Rudy, Mm -hmm. is the only one wearing a helmet. I just thought that was (laughs) like, you know, he's going to get hurt. So they they put him (laughs) in the helmet. And for me, watching it from a writing perspective, the first few minutes tell us a whole lot about Rudy and his dynamic and his hurdles that he's too small. Mm -hmm. And they tell us about his family dynamic. You know, we just learn everything we need to know that's going to set up the rest of this movie. Yes. And I don't remember where I saw this. I can't give you any kind of literature, but I once heard or read, whatever you want to do at age eight is your calling. Really? I don't remember where. That's just something in my... What if it's rock star or... I don't know. That's your calling, man, I guess. But, you know, he wanted to do this football thing yeah. when he was a kid. And that's that was just his calling. He don't did. Know if it's he true. wanted that his whole life, didn't he? Yeah. And I wrote down that well-meaning people have done a lot of damage to dreams. Mm. Like that teacher telling him he's not meant for college. Mm-hmm. He was well-meaning. You know, you just don't have the grades. You know, sometimes we just need to be happy with the gifts the Lord has given us. And shoo. Mm. And then I said, we all need friends like Pete, where he says you were born to wear that jacket and having dreams is what makes life tolerable. And then, of course, he dies. Right. I wondered if that was fiction, like Hollywood fiction, but it was not. He did have a best friend who did die that did spur him on. I'm sure you'll talk about that. Yep, we're going to get into all that. And I wrote in parentheses, sob. (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) (laughs) So in 20 minutes, Rudy's life has fallen apart. His best friend is gone and mm-hmm. his girlfriend is broken up with him. That's in the first 20 minutes of this movie. Yeah. Which sets him up is that talk about the underdog, oh, right? Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. He's lost everything. And so sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you they have set him up as the most sympathetic, likable guy mm-hmm. who has so many people beating him down. Yeah. 
kind of that one supportive person who he loses. Yeah. And I, that's the next thing I said, actually, is sometimes you have to follow a dream, no matter how impossible it looks to everyone, even yourself, it beckons you. Mm-hmm. And I think this dream is just, it was just beckoning him. And when his girlfriend said, if you go, then you're going to go alone. And he said, I know. Mm-hmm. It's just he knew, but he still had to go. Another comment I had was being single minded can be very isolating and lonely because he was he was pursuing this dream, but he was having to do it a lot of the times by himself. He still had people encouraging him, mm-hmm. but he still had to take those steps by himself. And and it really was brought into that loneliness and that just just outside of your dream was brought into focus for me when he was desperately trying to get into the game with that $10 bill. And they did this lift up where you see him walking along the deserted street. Yes. And then you see all the people inside the stadium. Yes. He's just outside of it, but he's still a hundred miles away. Yeah. I thought that was, oh. Yeah, that was a great scene. But back to your point, yes. the commitment to it, right? The fact that that agency, it's like, it's a dream and it may seem so far out there, but if you're committed to it and if you're determined you're going to find a way to make it happen and not let anybody stop you or yeah. not let anything stop you. Right. Yeah. And then when he was frustrated and Fortune tells him his comment about it's not a waste. You mm-hmm. know, he says, it's just been a waste. I didn't get in. I think he, he was actually rejected four times. I don't know if that's right. But Fortune says, you just got a year of top quality education. Right. It hasn't been a waste. Just because you didn't get what you wanted, you've still gotten all of these. And to me, that speaks to me personally because mm-hmm. I tend to do that is I have this goal, I have this single-minded vision, and it didn't come true exactly the way I wanted to in the time that I wanted it to. It's been a waste. Mm -hmm. You know, this has all been for nothing. But look what you got in the meantime. Speaking from kind of, I guess, a little analytical stance, I loved Fortune as that voice of wisdom, that kind of Mm mentor-type character who was there to give that perspective, to be that person who could kind of be a sounding board or that stick that you can kind of gauge yourself against Mm -hmm. to go, am I on track here? Wait a minute. And he also helped him stop being a dreamer and start being a doer Mm -hmm. because that's what he would do in school. He would just dream and and he would say, get back to work. You know, he you could tell he loved him and loved that he he was still dreaming, but he would always say, let's get back to work. You yeah, know, get let's your, make it happen now. Yeah, your head, your head's in the clouds, but let's put your feet on the floor and let's, let's walk forward. Let's make it happen. Right. I loved it when Fortune left him the key in the blanket. I did too. It's just like, <laughs> oh, that got me. I know. Okay. Their, um, their relationship was very special oh, to me. Oh, it was so, it was yeah. so special. And my comment was, sometimes single-mindedness makes us miss what's around us, like the blessings. So that's mm-hmm. what Fortune was telling him. You know, you've missed that you just got a year of top quality education. Right. One thing I'm interested in is how did he pay for it? So I don't know if you'll tell me that later. I'm going to okay. tell you that. I loved the priest saying, praying is something we do in our time. The answers come in God's time. Because he kept saying, is there anything else I can do? He said that mm-hmm. more than once. Is there anything else I can do to make this mm-hmm. come true? And the priest is like, I think I didn't write it down, but I think something else he said is there are two things I've learned in my all my years of priesthood is that number one, there is a God. Number two, I am not him. <laughs> that was so a good we, line. <laughs> it was interesting artistic choice. Every time he reads those rejection letters, mm-hmm. he gets further away from the post office. So the first one he opens right there. Yes. The next one he takes to his buddy, D-Bob. Then the third time, oh, the third time was the most heartbreaking because he's in that isolated hallway mm-hmm. and you just know by his body language. So and the upset. score. The, the, the way they use the music yes. to, oh. I noticed that. I was like, oh, you can tell by the music before he even opens that. If it's going to be good yes. or not. He opens the final one across 
where he's actually looking and he's like, oh, and he starts crying. His and I acting was, like, oh. was beautiful there. It was His so good. Was he just, it's like he let out a sob that mm-hmm. he had been holding in and just, oh, I felt it. It made me well up. And he goes straight to his father and says, I did it. And that's, you know, that's who he's been trying to prove himself to since the beginning is his dad. And his dad, even though he says, I did it, I got in, soon as he says, and I'm going to be on the football team, his dad's face falls. And it's like, you're still, you still haven't gotten his approval. And that's mm-hmm. just like, oh, that hit my heart. Yeah, that was such an underlying theme, the father-son relationship yes. and the fact that even though he was really so much about his own dream and and doing what he needed to do for himself, he really was also wanting to prove it to his dad. Dad yes. and and his other family members, his older brothers mm-hmm. as well. But really, everything seemed to go back to his dad, dad and needing just, needing yes. that approval from him as well. But I thought it was maybe it may not be true, but at least for the film story, I thought it was very significant that Fortune was the first person he told about getting yeah. to dress, and he says, "You know, you're going to come see me." And that instead of going to his dad, he went to his surrogate dad yeah. and said, "This is who this is who I want to know first. Nice. And Fortune's speech. When he just finally oh, decided to yes. quit. And he's like, oh, so you're just going to quit. That's when, since when did you become a quitter? And then he tells him again, who knows if it's real or not in the film says, you know, I quit and I've regretted it every day of my life. And if you quit, you're going to regret it every mm-hmm. day of your life. Oh, so the Jersey thing, the laying down of the Jersey, there is a, my name is Earl episode. That <laughs> Sean. No S- way. Yes. This does tie in. There is a, my name is Earl episode. I think it's from the second season that Sean Aston is a guest star. You are kidding me. I'm not kidding you. Have you seen this one? No, I, but I'm loving this already. <laughs> this is killing me. And Earl goes to work at this. He goes to try to sell washers and dryers, right? And he does a terrible job, but he goes out in the rain and he loads them and he proves himself to all the rest <laughs> of the people. And Sean Astin's character is this really horrible, mean, mean guy. And at the end, there's, I forget what it was. There's some kind of promotion or credit card or something that Earl wants. And every worker goes to... The Dan Devine character, who is played by the man who played it in Rudy. Oh, really? Yes. And they lay down their badges and they're like, this is for Earl. (laughs) This is for Earl. So they completely steal the Rudy That's brilliant. Oh, it was so funny. I want to watch that episode just for that. It's on, uh, you can watch it on Amazon. Okay. Yeah, Amazon (laughs) with commercials. But as soon as I saw this part, I was like, that's the My Name is Earl episode. That's right. It was so funny. Oh, that's so good. Uh, And then D-Bob going, he's so little. (laughs) He runs on the when he runs out onto the field. He's so little. Okay, so here's my wrap up thoughts. Okay. My last sentence was he did it. Rudy's story is so true to life and the pursuit of a dream. So 90% of that film was rejection and grit and determination. Mm-hmm. And 5% was giving in because you do naturally give up. And at some point, usually mm-hmm. if you didn't, mm-hmm. you just would be inhuman or unhuman. And 5% of it, just that last like 10 minutes is him actually achieving his goal. So mm-hmm. we go through a two hour movie and one hour and 50 minutes of it is us watching this man get beat up and told he can't do it and he just perseveres and perseveres metaphorically and and literally beat up yes both ways yes yeah but if he hadn't been through that 95%, the 5% wouldn't have been nearly as sweet as or fulfilling. So if he just walked in and been able to do this immediately, this wouldn't be an inspirational movie. It is the 95% that makes us go, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. Because he had these things that naturally would make him go, he can't do this. He's little. He doesn't weigh anything. And he still was able to do this. And so another thing I wondered is... 
Can I can I jump in really quickly? Yes. Just to mirror that, there was actually an article. I can't remember if it was the title or just a part of the article that said the 17 seconds that changed his life. Yes. Like it really in real life, it was seconds. it played out the same way. Yeah. All those years of working yes. and 17 seconds of that sack and and being on that field changed his life. Yeah. Go ahead back to your point. Oh, so my other point was it's kind of like with uh, Inigo Montoya. You know, he was single minded about avenging his father's death, and he says, "What do I do?" once I've done it. So what do you do if your whole life you've only wanted to be? And I mean, he he understood he's not going to be a player. He just wanted to play one play, one play, just as, so he could be in the roster mm-hmm. as having been on that yeah. team. What do you do when it's over? You have the rest of your life. Yeah. How do you do that? For him, I didn't know he was the, the force behind getting the movie made, but I did know that he had become an inspirational speaker. Yes. So I wrote down that he still has the rest of his life to live and he does what Everyone who has achieved a goal should do. He becomes the encourager for that 5% moment. The mm-hmm. 5% when you're like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And then he's like, wait a minute. I've been through this. I've got 100%. I'm going to tell you what to do in this 5%. Yeah. So nice. that just, that just, ooh, that touched me as a person who has been a person who doesn't have things and still has a goal. It's like you just put your head down and you do it and it is lonely and single-minded but you just keep going and then you live for that five percent at the end (sighs) nice oh rudy well i wanted to hear because i know that you really love that film and i wanted to get your reaction so thank you for sharing all that with us you've already segued into this beautifully Oh, good. i I had in the next section briefly i was going to talk about a few of the after effects you know after the movie what happened and and you've already alluded to that one of the things is that he did become an inspirational speaker but before we get to that First of all, the film was a success, not the type of success we might have anticipated. It made $22.8 million at the box office, which adjusted for inflation would be about $40 million today. It was not number one in 1993. In fact, it ranked 69th that year. Oh. It wasn't even the highest grossing college football film that year. It wasn't far behind James Kahn's film, The Program, but it mm. was behind it. Okay. But- As we've said, over the years, it resonated so much that it's now widely regarded as a sports classic, as we said at the top of the episode. In fact, in 2012, when Notre Dame football celebrated its 125th anniversary, they invited only a small number of former football players to speak. He was one of them. Of course, he has to be. Yeah. And he started his motivational speaking career. I'm Actually, I don't know what year he started that, but he does more than 50 speeches a year mm-hmm. as of 2018. I'm sure the pandemic slowed him down a little mm-hmm. bit. But he did found um, or co-found, I, I don't really know the details on that, but he's behind a college football Rudy Award mm-hmm. that they give out. Rudy has been a one-man stage show on Broadway. What? I know. So he's been in movies and he's been on Broadway and he's inspired a nation. Rudy. Yeah. Oh. In addition to My Name is Earl, they used uh, the premise to sell fried chicken at one point. There was some kind of a KFC commercial oh where they gosh. used Sean Astin. I missed that, but apparently it was it was pretty funny. He's written two books, Rudy has, one called Rudy My Story and another Rudy Rudiger, The Walk On. And then that became a documentary, which I watched. Okay. I watched the documentary and I got a lot of good information oh, from good. that, which we're going to be talking about okay. after our break because okay. that was really big and it was so wonderful to see him and to see some of his family members and footage mm-hmm. it was very cool so wonderful after effects from this film but the second surprise for me in the research was when i discovered there was some controversy about yeah. the truthfulness oh. and that's what i would love for us to talk about when we come back from our break okay 
Here's what took me by surprise, not having the background with Rudy sure. that you did. Sure. I came across lots of different research that talked about this, but but here was an ESPN article that had a quote, I think, that said this very nicely, okay? It pointed out that the same pattern we see in the movie has almost continued throughout Rudy's life. Mm-hmm. This tension between the many, many people who believe in and support him versus others who might question and try to bring him down. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote from the article. They are the ones who told Rudy he would never attend Notre Dame. Then they told him he would never survive there as a football walk-on or that a five foot six tackling dummy would ever actually dress for a game, let alone play. After his 27 seconds of glory against Georgia Tech in 1975, they said he was insane for thinking all of the above would ever make it to the silver screen. And now, a quarter of a century after Rudy was in theaters, they are still here. They question his true role in Notre Dame's unparalleled college football history and constantly challenge him to defend the truthfulness of the film that bears his name. So that's slanted, obviously. That person who wrote the ESPN article sounds as though they feel like it's a little unfair. But I think there's some legitimate, what's the word? There's some legitimacy to saying that the film is not 100% accurate. Sure. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. Now, if I understand this correctly, to me, it sounds like even when the film first came out, some people right off the bat were like, hey, that didn't actually happen that way. That Jersey scene didn't happen that way. Uh But I feel like it must have been outweighed or it wasn't super widespread. You know, people continued over the years. They watched the film. They're more familiar with it through the film. Right. People weren't putting out news articles or or talking on podcasts. I think that really what kind of brought it into the attention more fully again was back in 2010 when Joe Montana spoke on a podcast. He was on the Dan Patrick show. Okay. And now Joe Montana was actually on the team. I I saw that in the trivia. He was on that 1975 team. Now he wasn't actually on the field. I think he was injured. But here's what he said in 2010 to Dan Patrick. It's a movie, remember? Not all that's true. The crowd wasn't chanting. Nobody threw in their jerseys. And he said that when Rudy, this is not a quote, but when Rudy was carried off the field, his teammates were, quote, kind of playing around. I won't say as a joke, but playing around. He worked his butt off to get where he was, but not any harder than anybody else. And so these comments on the show even caused Dan Patrick to say, oh, you're ruining it for me. You know, like this was kind of like, ah, you're Mm -hmm. getting me. I found where Joe Montana also said a little bit about it in 2020 on the podcast Pardon My Take. Here's a quote from that. Was there a lot of things that happened? Yeah. He got in. He got a sack. Was the crowd chanting? No. Did I throw in my jersey? No. Did he get carried off the field? He got carried off by three of the biggest pranksters on the team. So my understanding is Joe Montana's comments are some of the ones that have gotten the most play play and really brought a lot of attention to people saying, well, what was true and what wasn't? Right. This took me by surprise. And I was like, okay, I would like to know what's true and what isn't. So that was kind of the slant that I took for the rest of this episode with my research. I watched Rudy's documentary, which is wonderful. And by the way, I'm going to say this again. He acknowledges based on. Right, right. The screenwriter acknowledges based Based on. on. We were trying to tell a story that Mm -hmm. would be inspirational Mm -hmm. and touch people. And you have to tell it in two hours. 
Yeah. So here's, and you jump in at any point, but okay. I'm just going to kind of move through a lot of things All right. to give you Rudy's true story. All right. Okay. By the way, the production of the film started in 1992. As we said, they told us it was modified for dramatic effect based on a true story, which is what comes up at the top of the film. You yes, see that on the screen. Yes. This will disappoint you just a tiny bit. What? <laughs> First of all, Rudy's personality was not like Sean Astin's. Oh, yeah. nobody's personality is like Sean Astin's. I, apparently, he's still super lovable, but they said that the best way to describe him would be likably abrasive. Oh, no, I can totally see yeah. that because you can't, you cannot get where you're going if you're just a pushover. Yeah. He's you a, have to get in there. It's like when Sean, Sean is sweet about it, but he walks right into the coach's office and he says, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to play for you. I could see that. Yeah. We're going to get to that because okay. that did happen. But yeah, they said he's likably abrasive. A lot of people described him in this way. Like, he was my friend and he was a total pain in my butt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of who it. he is. Yep. Rudy did not have any older brothers. I, I saw that they did make Frank kind of a conglomeration of mm-hmm. everybody who said, you can't do this. 100%. And I'm glad. I'm glad they did that because you don't want, I'm sure Frank, if there was a real Frank, would be like, really? Yeah. That's my legacy? But just making him fictional really helps. Yeah. He was the oldest brother. He had two older sisters, six younger brothers, and four younger sisters. So he was the oldest of the boys. Okay. And he said in a quote, we had them flip-flop so the movie could work. Remember, it's everybody's movie, not your movie. We're going out to the masses, not just certain families. And basically, there was no Frank. Frank was supposed to be a composite of everybody who's ever discouraged me. There was a Francis, but no Frank. Okay. I personally, when he said that about to make the movie work, I think that we needed Frank, Mm -hmm. you know, to put him down Mm -hmm. and to, you know, so he would, again, would be more of the underdog Mm -hmm. trying to prove things to his dad and And to Frank, right? Mm -hmm. Johnny steals his girl in the film. That makes him more sympathetic. Obviously, none of that happened. Yeah. You know, but he was such the underdog. Now, one thing that I thought was cool was he said in his documentary that being one of, what was it, 14 kids? Yes. That was helpful to him. Why? Because it taught him from being very young how to position himself. Mm. You had to fight to get what you wanted, even within the family. <laughs> he made the that joke about sense. to get that pair of underwear out of the, you know, <laughs> out of the dryer before somebody else got it, or, you know, or to get that the food that's coming out on the table. Yeah. He was like, everything was positioning yourself. In the movie, Rudy's father is very negative and gruff, not very supportive. The an ESPN article said that dad. That's where I, I didn't see it about Dan Devine, but I saw that dad agreed to allow his negative character traits to be exaggerated because it would appeal, it would make the movie more dramatic. Yeah, I don't know. To say he's negative and I just think he was realistic. Mm-hmm. And I think he was well-meaning. I didn't see that he didn't love mm-hmm. Rudy. I just think he, especially with the story that he told, I think that gave a lot of motivation for his character about how his grandfather had come to the country mm-hmm. and lost all of his money and the kids got separated. That explained to me right. why he's going, listen, just lay low, live a good life. You can live a good life, work hard, and that's all. And he didn't want him to get hurt. Yeah. I didn't look to see if the story about that, if the grandpa, if the grandpa story story Mm -hmm. was true, but what you said about his belief system, I think is, is very accurate. I saw, I think Rudy talks about it on the documentary and and the brothers do as well, that dad did believe in you work hard. You have a family, you provide for your family, you give back to society. Like that's what he thought a man's role was to be. Yeah. So that part I think was very accurate, but it also made the parents sound just absolutely lovely in that documentary, even with all these kids, dad 
coached Little League at different points. Mm -hmm. Mom was involved, I think, with uh, the women's club or something. They talked about they believed in giving back. There was like a little side lot beside the house. They would go out and play as, you know, different Mm -hmm. family members would play each other. And so these parents were very involved. That sounded lovely. That's good. Yeah. And so dad, his gruffness, they said, was exaggerated in the movie. So after Rudy graduated... He went to the Navy. Well, first, let me say this. He graduated from Joliet Catholic High School in 1966. Mm -hmm. First, he went to a power plant. Okay. It was not a steel mill. Okay. It was a power plant. But then he talks in the documentary that Vietnam was going on, his friends were going off, and he says that without telling his parents, he went and enlisted in the Navy in 1969, and he served a tour in Vietnam aboard the destroyer, the USS Robert L. Wilson. Now, the source I saw said it was two years. I'm not sure how that worked out, but... It said that he was involved with communications on the ship. I'm not sure exactly what he did. But he does say, the Navy is where I got my callus. It toughened me up. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to show that in the film. Mm -hmm. Too many victories. We wanted to show that underdog. Sure. But they they said that he did carry the satchel to kind of represent his time in the Mm. Navy. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. He does also talk about the fact that while he was on this ship, he one day was talking to this young lieutenant. And he saw that the guy had a Notre Dame class ring. And he said when he told that officer that he wanted to go to school there, he was kind of bracing himself for the guy to say, ah, that's crazy. You know, Mm -hmm. shut up and do your job. And he said instead the officer encouraged him and told him if his dream was to go to Notre Dame, then he needed to study and he could do it, that he was a good guy. And this was actually part of a motivational speech, I believe, that he was delivering to people at this time when I was seeing him in the documentary. And his point was he had so many naysayers Mm -hmm. and the difference it made when this one One guy says, oh, you can do it. Yeah. And he said that that lit a fire in him again. But when he returned from the Navy, he went back to the power plant. He wasn't quite ready yet. In fact, he worked for about two more years, according to one source. And then he was one day called with his friend Siskel. I could not find the first name, Okay. but his last name was Siskel. And these, they were supposed to fix a jam in the plant's coal delivery system. Now, Siskel was actually, there was not the Pete character. Okay. This guy was somebody about 30 years older than Rudy. Okay. He met him at the power plant. Okay. But they would eat lunch together. And he was a sympathetic character because Rudy would talk about his dream. And this guy was like, you know what? I wanted to be a doctor, but I had to put my dreams aside because I got married young. Now he has several kids. Mm -hmm. And so he he would kind of encourage Rudy. And so this one particular day when the jam happened, Siskel got there ahead of Rudy, didn't wait for anybody to help. And then when the conveyor cranked to life, it carried Siskel through these coal crushers. And he died while Rudy was trying to administer mouth to mouth to save him. And Rudy said, quote, I will never forget that taste and that smell. They were taking him away and I was standing there covered in his blood with that taste still in my mouth. Then I heard a voice as clear as you talking to me right now. You call it whatever you want. My gut, my conscious, God, all it said was leave. So I walked right out that door, packed my stuff, and I headed to South Bend. And he said in the documentary that this incident really made him realize how short life is. Oh, my goodness. I know. So it didn't play out the way it did in the film. It wasn't this best Mm -hmm. friend, Mm -hmm. but it was this traumatic, tragic incident that really just made him realize he was going for it. He did attend 
Holy Cross Junior College in South Bend while he was hoping to transfer to Notre Dame. But another difference from the movie, you asked earlier, how did he pay for it? Yeah. He had the GI Bill because he had been in the Navy. Okay. Yeah. He said he could pay for it. He could. He was covered. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. There really was a D-Bob, except I don't know if he went by D-Bob. <laughs> I'm not sure if the and nickname is accurate. he wore two watches. <laughs> I thought, what's with the two watches? Why? That was just cute. I didn't see that part. His name was Dennis McGowan, and he was taking a law class at Holy Cross. And his story of how they met was that he and this buddy of his would be in class, and they would notice how Rudy every day was like decked out with like the Notre Dame stuff. Yeah. Did you see this? No. no, oh, no. I didn't know if we're, we watched uh, the same documentary. And he said that they would kind of like, you know, kind of laugh a little bit and joke and he said one day he noticed that Rudy had caught on to it and yeah. was he told the D-Bob or you know Dennis tells his other friend he's like he's gonna come after us after this <laughs> class is he's over he's a tiny little chihuahua and, and he, he's that's what going he to said. bite our ankles exactly he said he said they go into the hall he, they're much bigger guys yeah. and he said sure enough here comes Rudy right at him what, what's so funny what do you, you know? and he's like just on them and, and Dennis said that he had to reassure them God, you know what it's no, cool, no no man. no we like you we like you we just we're just Talk, no big deal. And they became friends. That's cute. Yeah. An inspirational person to him, very inspirational, was sometimes he called him Father John, sometimes Brother John. But okay. this priest who was president of Holy Cross, he was the one who advised Rudy, work hard, get your grades up. If you give me four good semesters and get your grades up, I'll advocate for you basically okay. to get okay. you into Notre Dame. He encouraged him. Rudy kept saying, I, I need to get on that football team now. Look how old I am already. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, no, you're never too old. You got to do this. You got to so do this good. the right way. You can do this. In fact, when Rudy failed a few tests right there at the beginning, this Father John or Brother John is the one who advised him, you know what? Make relationships with your professors, which mm. was really great advice because this is something that carried him through when he got to Notre Dame as well, making relationships. Yeah. And isn't that how they discovered about his dyslexia? I never found that in the okay. research. He definitely admitted that he was dyslexic, but I never saw who actually discovered that or when I, they began to treat it. I don't know. I think in the trip that I read it was a teacher that but in the film it's D-Bob uh, it wasn't D-Bob no it wasn't D-Bob yeah. but a teacher kind of got suspicious and had him tested and that's how that's, they figured it mm, out how they figured gave it him out. some strategies yeah now Rudy did meet Father Kavanaugh, who was a former president of the university, you know, Notre Dame. But they said that the movie version of Father Kavanaugh is a composite of the real Kavanaugh and one other priest, according to Dorothy Corson in her article, A Cave of Candles. I am going out on a limb here. I'm going to say that that other priest was this Father John that we were just uh, talking about. Most likely. I yes. think that's what they did was they collapsed those two together. You mentioned earlier the four rejections. Mm -hmm. Dennis said in the documentary, it was more like 50. No. He said it was rejection after rejection oh. after rejection. And in that documentary, they talk about after one rejection letter, Rudy apparently got it at home, not in his condo. And he drove over to campus, knocked on the door at 11 o'clock at night to talk to a priest. And he was allowed to. So we see kind of hints of this incident in mm -hmm. the movie, but it didn't play out exactly sure. the same. In this case, this priest didn't actually encourage him. He told him Notre Dame wasn't for everyone. And it kind of drug him down a little bit. Well, it wasn't long after there was a real incident where... He was in a parking lot and he sees Era Procedian, you know, the coach, going into the building where his office is. He says, I'm going to go talk to him. First, he was going to talk to him and he got scared. He didn't do it. But then he noticed that as he was going in the door, he was like, if I slide in right behind yep. him, I can... <laughs> 
I, I get, can in. get in that building. Yep. So he did. He got in that door, went into his room. He told him, I'm going to play for you. And he said that the coach kind of basically placated him and was kind of like, oh, good, sure, you know, okay, honey. great. Look forward to seeing you. <laughs> and that Rudy felt so bad that he'd blown it that he cried afterwards. Aww. But that somehow this led to him getting offered a job, not by the coach, but somebody else who kind of encountered him, you know, when he was upset, said, do you need a job? He got a job working on the Notre Dame campus. They liked him so much. They put him on student government. And he said, this is where he was on the Notre Dame campus so much. People thought he was a student. He was there all the time. He acted like he owned the place. Right. (laughs) Because he did in his mind. Just not yet. Yeah. One other thing that he did that was not in the movie at all was he was involved with bingle bouts. He tried to do this even before he was a Notre Dame student and then definitely after he was. This was some kind of a boxing thing. So in the movie, they make it look as though, especially once he gets to Notre Dame, all he does is like study, Uh work, and football practice. Not the case. He interacted with people all the time. Like that student body got to know this man. And another way they got to know him was, here's a quote from an ESPN article. If you had been at Notre Dame in the mid-70s and knew of Rudy, it was probably because he frequently traded punches in benefit boxing matches called bingle bouts. Mm. I was always the underdog, Rudy told Newsday. See, I'd fight guys bigger than me. In boxing, it's not how good you are, it's how tough you are. That's how the student body knew me. I got everyone to know me. And they started, they would chant for him Uh when he... He was boxing. Oh. So that whole Rudy chant thing, actually, he said that's kind of where that started, that okay. idea of student body knowing him yeah. and chanting for him. And rooting for him. Yeah. And he was just super aggressive the way they really liked how this small guy with so much fight would like aggressively come out as soon as the match started. A little banny rooster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought this was super fascinating. Rudy did not live in the stadium. I'm sad to say that whole thing never happened with the that's key. That's okay. And the, yeah. Okay. It was just beautiful. It was beautiful. In the film, it was beautiful. Well, then I'm going to also break your heart. I'll just go ahead and tell you this right now. <laughs> there was no fortune. No. Oh, no. I knew that. He was a composite. He was a composite of character. Of three different people. Yes. And then didn't, I couldn't find who those people were. It just said that they basically represented another perspective. Yeah. So he was a composite. So he actually was living in the basketball arena. The university needed people who would live there and be around full time for insurance purposes. Oh. So they added two, not one, but two tiny dorm rooms and allowed two students to live there. He was one of them. Uh-huh. And one of those rooms and then you had to do various jobs throughout the building that's that was part of this deal so Rudy would one of the things he did was like during basketball games he would be the guy who would run out and like wipe the floor if somebody got you know got it sweaty or if some water drip I could see him running out there yeah he <laughs> was back. he was the guy with the towel and the mop in yeah. fact he said there's like some kind of photo of him I think he said on Sports Illustrated where you can see him like kind of crouched down behind Bill Watson yeah. I think it was so anyway he also got to meet Elvis one night because he was making an appearance in that building what? and you know he was working it he was working security that's cool so his experience was a little different that way but as I well. can see why they made it that he worked oh, for the football sure. because that's just too branching off like I said we only got two hours you, and so. you have to make it tight now the jersey scene okay we've already touched on this According to the Houston Chronicle, and I don't know, I could not find whether this was right after or if this was after years had passed, but the Houston Chronicle said at some point that Coach Dan Devine was furious was the word they used about the scene. Here's this quote from Dan Devine himself. The Jersey scene is unforgivable. It's a lie and untrue. 
coming on the heels of Under the Tarnished Dome, which was a book that had been critical about the university's football program, I don't think it's a very good thing for Notre Dame. Now, it's actually on the Notre Dame website. They have interviews with people about this whole incident, this 1975 game and Rudy getting in there. So there was a testimonial, if you would, or somebody speaking who says this information. And it was also said by Rudy himself and by Pat Sarb himself. But there was at least one real guy, Pat Sarb, a senior cornerback who was on the team who gave up his uniform. Right. Now, here's what seemed to be the truth when I tried to cross-reference all these different sources. But again, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Some context was given by Pat Sarb's first cousin in this little blog post. He explained that Coach Devine, remember this was his first year coming in, decided to start many underclassmen during his first season, which put some of the veteran upperclassmen out. The NCAA had also placed restrictions on dress squad size, limiting the home team to only 60 players. So that had caused this guy, Pat Sarb, who was a senior, to get moved to the practice squad, and he did not get to dress for the first five home games of that season. And in this blog post, again, this cousin says, it's customary for most of the seniors to dress for the last home game of the season, which was the Georgia Tech game on November 8th. And he says that Pat saw his name on the dress list on the Thursday before the game, many names of other senior walk-on players were not on that list, including Rudy's. Now, Pat himself, in this 2008 book that came out, it might just be a section of the book, Mm -hmm. We Are Notre Dame, the story of Notre Dame as told by her alumni. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote from him. Captains Ed Bauer and Jim Stock met me in the locker room prior to Friday's practice and asked if I would give up my spot for Rudy. I immediately said yes, because I truly felt that it would be an injustice if Rudy and some of the other guys who had worked so hard were never able to experience the thrill of running through the tunnel Mm -hmm. on game day. Mm -hmm. So I sat in the senior section of the stands and watch the drama unfold at the end of the game. Now, a cool little follow-up note is that his son, Matthew Sarb, ended up playing at Notre Dame many years later and wore number 45, Rudy's number, as a walk-on. Yeah. Now, in the documentary, one of Rudy's brothers, it didn't say his name, so I'm not sure which one it was, he said it was true that Rudy was going to quit when he saw he wasn't on the dress list Mm -hmm. for the final home game. Rudy called him, and there was a conversation to one of the brothers at home, and then they go on to tell you in the documentary, Rudy says that after he had that phone call and he was walking back to his room, he passed a janitor who was limping, and he said something like, hey man, you okay? Like, why are you limping? And the guy explained that he wore a prosthesis because he had lost a leg due to diabetes. Mm. And Rudy says, you know, he commented something like, gosh, you know, you never complain. I've never heard you whine about it. That's amazing. And the guy said something about how much he loved this place and how lucky he was to be there and how he, you know, he just loved working here. And Rudy said it changed his attitude that he went to practice. And then at that practice, Dan Devine gave a little talk, did a little housekeeping, and then announced there was a change in the dress list. Oh, see, if he just left, he wouldn't have known. And a quote from him was, Dan made the announcement that I'd be playing at practice and everybody cheered. That was in the New York Times. So it sounds like it was this situation Mm -hmm. that you see how the movie got it, although it's definitely much more dramatic and changed for the film. Four of Rudy's family members were there, his parents and two brothers, when he made that play. One brother talked about crying when he saw Rudy run out with the team. And then Johnny, John, one of his brothers who apparently was there, said, when the game started winding down, I thought, ah, he's not going to get into the game. 
And then all of a sudden the Rudy chant started and then you see him on the sidelines running into the game. That was just wild. I bet. Now, a lot of people, remember Joe Montana said there the chance did not happen. Rudy in the little 12 minute documentary I saw said it was like a few, not the, I don't think it was the whole stands, but it was a few of the student body who had recognized him. So yeah. he said it did because he was hearing them say his name. It's interesting because again, conflicting accounts. Rudy said in another source, hell yeah, it happened. If only my family and friends alone had done it, it would have been enough, but there was a group of students who started it. That's mm-hmm. a, he said that. Pat Sarb, from that same source that I, I gave you an excerpt from earlier, he said, it was a fourth quarter tradition for the senior section to chant the names of the seniors who had never played. Okay. We chanted Rudy's name in unison, and he finally got in and sacked the quarterback on the final play. So he was saying the chants were happening, yeah. at least with some of those seniors. Yeah. And, and Rudy came back in a different source and said, again, remember, they would chant for him. They knew him because right. of the boxing right so he felt like some of the student section knew him and that was some of it little quick side note rudy got to meet many years later as a motivational speaker the quarterback that he sacked yeah his name was Rudy Allen. No. And so Guy was saying that Rudy Allen said on his first snap, which was also Rudy's first defensive snap, Allen hurled the ball 40 yards down the right sideline, incomplete. This set up the final play in the game. It was another pass attempt, but this time Rudy sacked Rudy yeah. Allen to end the game, creating an iconic moment in college football history. That was just a little background. But in the interview, Rudy Allen said, this was in 2018, it was crazy to hear the crowd chanting, Rudy, Rudy. I was thinking, why? Why are they calling my name? (laughs) I had no idea what was going on at the time. It's hard to forget that. Afterward, you learn you helped a guy make history. So according to the quarterback that got sacked, he heard it. He heard his the the, the chant. He heard it. He heard it. And that makes so much more sense because I was watching that playback and they were saying Rudy Allen, blah, blah, blah. I was like, his name's not Rudy Allen. Why is the head announcer saying Rudy (laughs) Allen did all this stuff? Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. So you got three or four different sources saying there was some kind of chanting happening. Yeah. Yeah. We are almost there. Just a couple more notes. When they got into the locker room, Rudy said that the coach first said, hey, Rudy, you want to say anything? And that his comment was something to the effect of, I've been waiting for this my whole life. Oh, he says that in the movie too. And then a sports writer came up to him and said to him something like, hey, man, I, I didn't know who you are. You're like this unknown player. You, you haven't been playing and you got this whole crowd cheering for you. Like, So and, the reporter heard it too. Well, there lots of cheers. Yeah. yeah. And supposedly said something to the effect of stuff like what I just saw only happens in Hollywood. Mm, and, and that planted Rudy's, the idea. That's exactly right. Rudy said that was it. That was he the said, moment. Oh, when, really? <laughs> that was his moment of, I have a new goal. <laughs> I need to make a movie of this. So just to bring this to a full closure, Rudy was asked, he's been asked, I'm sure, several times how he responds to Joe Montana's statements. Sure. Here's one of the quotes that and he's he, given he when asked about say, that. Sour grapes, Joe. Sour grapes. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, I'm not going to talk about a teammate, and I'm not going to go against Joe Montana because he interprets everything differently than you and I. So I'm going to let him have his interpretation, how he saw it, and how he feels about it. And I love him to this day. He was a teammate of mine. I'm not going to put him down. I'm saying, God bless you, Joe. I enjoyed your career. I enjoyed you at Notre Dame. So that's just one response that he gave. What a classy response. Yeah. So the last thing I will say is it's very cool. Go on to the Notre Dame website and we'll, we'll put the link out for you guys to check this out. But it is really nice to see some of the footage, to hear some of these players who were on the field mm-hmm. telling their perspective because it is interesting. Just, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a rabbit trail for just a second. But for example, there was this man, his last name was Heavens. Honestly, I forgot to catch 
match his first name, but his last name was Heavens. And he shared how he had the most amazing game. Like it was, it, he was on fire and how it was totally overshadowed. Aww. Like he had done these like incredible things. Yeah. And, and he, he says, I was really happy for Rudy, Aww. but gosh, it kind of hurt to have this game that was amazing. amazing. And like, nobody remembers that as a historic thing, right. you know, but it, it was kind of cool to see and hear some of these things that people were saying. Armchair psychologist. Armchair. Bring it in. Boy, we've, we've had, I think this is a little bit of a long episode. That's but okay. We've had really, a lot to say. Yes. So what are your thoughts about the controversy? The truth oh. versus fiction? Does it does it affect how you feel about the film? No. What are your thoughts? No, it doesn't affect it at all. Okay. Because I, again, maybe it's from our position as actors, writers, people in this mm-hmm. field. I feel like we understand that you have to fictionalize some parts in order to tell the full story. So they're taking the essence essence of it and telling a story. And I think that the story they told is is the message that Rudy wanted to mm-hmm. leave with the world, which is what I talked about earlier. You have 100% of your life and 95% of your life, you fight and you're determined and you keep going. And then you have this 5% or maybe more of wanting to give up. But as long as you have those people who encourage you, and sometimes you don't, sometimes it's just your own self-will or you just keep going. And then that 5% is what you've been working for. Mm. And I think it's also very important to become that encourager for the other people that are now going through their journey. Mm-hmm. So it makes me reflect and go, I hope I have never been a well-meaning person. Meaning, I hope I've never looked at somebody else and gone, oh, mm. I understand that this is your dream, but you know, I'm going to try to help you. I'm going to try to protect you. And I hope if I ever have, I hope that they prove me wrong every mm. single time. Because if you've got a dream and it's in your soul and it's calling to you, I hope that they will do what Rudy did and just Mm -hmm. chase that dream no matter what, even if it is lonely. Because it can be. But that 5%, man, that 5%. It's interesting reading so many sources, watching so many different things, because I did have the the fortune of, as I said, I got to see a whole documentary. You know, Mm -hmm. I got to hear Rudy himself talk, plus all these different interviews and things. All that to say, a few themes that emerged, you know, we've already used that word dream, you know, numerous times. Rudy also used the phrase joy stealers. Mm, He he would talk about, don't be a joy stealer, but also don't let other people steal steal your your joy. joy. And that was a big thing with him. Yeah. And so I like that idea. I'm going to go back to what you said. In this case, it was about telling a story. Mm -hmm. He had gone from the goal of achieving his first dream to now he had a second dream of, I need my inspirational movie to get out there to to really set fire to all these other people to help them achieve their dreams. and. To achieve that goal, you needed to take some poetic license. Yeah. You had to make a tight story. Yeah. You had to tell it as succinctly and as carefully, as powerfully as you could. Mm-hmm. And I think that that screenwriter he got it. and Rudy both tried to acknowledge that. I, I think as an adult, you know, in the beginning when I would see based on a true story, I did believe it meant full truth. Mm. Now I understand based on does not, not mean, mean full truth. No, it <laughs> like, does not. And, and if anything, it always makes me want to go and look up. You know, I always I, try I to say afterwards. loosely based. Yeah. For if if I'm writing something that is based on a true story, I depending on if it is tightly or loosely. You know, to me, based on means more than loosely. Like he said, according to Rudy, ninety two percent. So I would say that is based on. Mm-hmm. But stuff I've written, it's like loosely based on. Yeah. It's got threads of truth in there. But you have to take artistic license. You just can't tell the full story in two hours. If it's okay, I thought I would actually give the last word to a couple of different sources. Yes, please. So Roger Ebert, back in that same 1993 review that I've mentioned several times, 
says, Rudy comes from a working class family in Joliet where his father joins his family, his teachers, his neighbors, and just about everybody else in assuring him that he lacks not only the brawn, but also the brains Mm. to make it into a top school like Notre Dame. But Rudy persists. And although this story reads in outline like an anthology of cliches from countless old rags to riches sports movies, Rudy persists too. It has a freshness and an earnestness that gets us involved. And by the end of the film, we accept Rudy's dream as more than simply sports sentiment. It's a small but powerful illustration of the human spirit. Mm-hmm. Sean Astin, of course, who played Rudy, said that he um, has been asked about this film over and over again. And he made the comment that this movie is the one fans love to pick apart when they talk to him, even more than like his Lord of the Ring works. Like, like why. yes, here's his quote. And this is from a few years back, guys. It's not 100% true, but the emotional response that Rudy creates in people, Mm -hmm. that's what's true. Mm -hmm. That's why we are here talking about this film 25 years later. Mm -hmm. I loved what he said about the emotional response. And in the documentary, it ends with the most feel-good moment. Rudy is on, I believe, the Notre Dame campus and young People are walking by, students, and he's stopping them. And he's saying, hey, what's your favorite sports movie? And a lot of them, of course, say Rudy. And then he'd be like, would you like to meet that guy? Would you want to meet him? And what what would you say to him? And these young people will, you know, oh, I'd love to meet him. When they find out it's him, him. like the the hugs or the reactions. And these are people who were not alive. I know. When that movie came Can out. Can I play you a quote from the last? Yes. Yeah, let me play you this quote and we'll let Rudy, we'll let Rudy himself take us. Oh, home. great. This was the last part of the documentary I saw. It's called The True Rudy Story. As I tackled him, the game ended and that's when the team picked me up. That was a special moment. A moment of pride. The power of the dream has given someone hope. You know, that's the most powerful thing you can give someone. So giving your spirit to other people, giving them the feeling of, you know, it's worth it, all this hard work. It was worth it, even when it looked the darkest. It's like a little boy coming up to me today, a 10-year-old boy. He said, I'm going to Notre Dame. I will never say to him, you can't. I will always say to him, you're going to do it. Oh, I love I know, that. I know. I will never say to him, you can't. I will always uh, say to him, you can do it. I love it. Well, I think it's very clear oh. that we need to cheers this one to Dan Rudy Rudiker. Yes. With a little tiny cheers to Sean Astin as well. A bigger one. Let's, let's. A yeah. big old glass to you, Sean, <laughs> and well. another yes. big glass to you, Rudy. Cheers to you guys. Thank you. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. 
It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.